This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey, I'm Nick. And I'm Victor. And this is Megashane. Megashane is a queer, people of color, weekly podcast, and we talk about anything from drag, to comics, to video games, to... Boys. And anything else in between. (laughs) So, if you want to listen to us, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and you can follow us on Megashane Pod and Megashane on Twitter. That's right. So follow us, talk to us. We'll be here. And we out. Universal FanCon is a brand new convention coming to the Baltimore Convention Center in April of 2018. FanCon will be a round-the-clock event featuring comics, cosplay, gaming, celebrity guests, music, and more with a focus on diversity and inclusion. Get your tickets now at UniversalFanCon.com because geek is universal. I'm Amy Aniobi, writer-producer on HBO's Insecure, and you are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, this is Karen Pittman. I play Inspector Priscilla Ridley on Marvel's Luke Cage, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Parisa Fitenley, and I play Fiji Kavanaugh on Midnight Texas. You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I'm Marcus Scribner from Blackish, and you're listening to Black Girl Nerds. Hey, what up, y'all? This is Jenny Ellis from HBO's Insecure, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerd Podcast. Uh, my name is Tanahasi Coates. I write for The Atlantic, and I am the writer on uh, Black Panther right now, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I'm Cameron Bailey, Artistic Director of the Toronto International Film Festival, and you're now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. This is Simone Missick, and I am Misty Knight, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. for tuning in to episode 125 of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled Tina Mabry, Midnight Texas Monica, and Who's Streets. Three segments. In our first segment, we talk to filmmaker, writer, producer, Tina Mabry. She's responsible for a huge body of work you've more than likely have seen many times. She's on shows such as Queen Sugar, Queen of the South, HBO's Insecure, and coming up soon, ABC's The Mayor. She's also writing the screen adaptation for Angie Thomas's book, The Hate You Give. That conversation is hosted by yours truly and co-hosted by Tora. 
In our second segment, we invite Monica Owusu-Brain. She's the TV showrunner behind the hit Supernatural series, Midnight Texas. We're big fans of the show here at BGN, and she's going to talk on a one-on-one. And in this segment, she talks with Ashia about this upcoming episode that we're expecting on Monday with some interesting details. And also within that segment, we go over to San Diego Comic-Con yet again and talk to some of the cast of Midnight Texas. This includes roundtable interviews featuring Parisa Fitzhenley, Peter Mensa, Dylan Bruce, and Ariel Kebble. In our final segment, Jacqueline does a one-on-one interview with the directors behind the film Who Streets, featuring Sabah Fulian and Damon Davis. The film is about activists and leaders who live and breathe in the movement for justice and goes into a deep dive into the unflinching look at the Ferguson uprising. So that's our show. Three incredible, fantastic segments. And thanks so much for tuning in to episode 125. Tina Mabry, Midnight Texas Monica, and Who Streets. Enjoy. Tina Mabry graduated from the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts with an MFA in film production in 2005. Tina is a writer, director, and producer for television and film. She was the co-producer, writer, and director for season two of USA's hit drama, Queen of the South. She's also a producer, writer, and director on OWN's first season of the award-winning show, Queen Sugar, created by Ava DuVernay and Oprah Winfrey. Tina produced and directed the award-winning Melody 1963, Love Has to Win, an American Girl special for Amazon Kids, and Tina won a DGA award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Children's Programming for Melody, as well as an NAACP award. Tina has directed episodes of Netflix's Dear White People, HBO's Insecure, and ABC's new comedy, The Mayor. Welcome to this episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. All of you cinephiles out there, you TV geeks and nerds, you're going to really love this podcast because we have a writer, director, and producer. Her name is Tina Mabry. She has an incredibly impressive resume. And just to name off some of the few properties that she's worked on, Queen of the South, Queen Sugar, HBO's Insecure, Dear White People, and ABC's newest comedy called The Mayor. Tina, thank you so much for coming on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Uh, Thank you guys so much for having me. It's an honor. And lovely, lovely to have our co-host, Tora, on this interview. Tora, thanks for being here. Oh, my God. Thanks for having me, you guys. Um, And also, in addition to your TV works, I should mention that uh, Tina has a film, it's her feature film, that's currently streaming on Netflix called Mississippi Damned. So if you haven't checked that out already, please do for all you Netflix fans. Tina, I'm I'm really excited to talk to you because like I mentioned in the intro, you have just this huge resume and this huge body of work. But I kind of want to go back to your origin story a little bit. Um, okay. Because <laughs> I, <laughs> I read somewhere that you were inspired to get into filmmaking after watching the movies Boys Don't Cry and Love and Basketball, which those are like on my top 10 list of movies. So what was it specifically about each of those films that inspired you to get into the entertainment industry? 
Well, the thing is, I've, I've always been in love with film. Um, and it's been something that, you know, it connected with my mother uh, about my dad never watched films. <laughs> so it was always <laughs> news and sports. So, um, but it was a way that we opened up communication. But you never see anyone in Mississippi, um, you know, shooting a film. I think Mississippi Burning was the last film at the time mm. I was there that had been shot. And I was not in Jackson, nor was I able to uh, trek down three uh, hours south <laughs> at my age at that time with no license. So um, what I ended up doing is I think we end up not realizing what we can actually achieve. And so I kind of went with that. You go to college and you need to pick one of the three solid professions. It's like <laughs> law, <laughs> engineering, medicine. <laughs> so because, <laughs> and I'm like, I can't be a doctor, scared of blood. Engineering, not great at math and science. Lawyer, meh, I like to argue, sure. <laughs> so I just got <laughs> So I decided to go down the law school path and I'm sitting there my last year. I'm graduating in probably four or five months away from graduation and I'm studying for the LSAT, which is anybody who's ever looked at the practice books. You really want to throw it out the window and use it like clay pigeons. Uh, You just want to shoot it. Um, And so, but I took that break, um, between the LSAT, I was just like, I can't study anymore. Let me take a break. And for some reason, I decided to pick up those two films. Um, I had rented. And I was like, let me relax and watch them. And so I watched Love and Basketball, and I watched Boys Don't Cry. And while they're two different films, they're films that I still can't shake, and I couldn't shake at that moment. And what was so int- int- what was so important for me was that what I saw was after these two powerful films, I saw written and directed by, you know, a woman mm. at the end of it. Um, to, to go through Love and Basketball and to have that experience, see the black images, be able to go through a love story, a coming of age story, you know, how much it touches you. And we all can quote it, you know, it's like, you know, <laughs> two out of three, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we just, you know, we have that. And then to see Gina's, Gina Prince Bythewood's name pop up at the end, it's like, okay, there's a woman. And then at the same thing of Boys Don't Cry and ten, telling the Brandon Tina story, uh, which I had no idea about, about this transgender uh, man who was murdered Mm. and so you know that was something it was just completely eye-opening and so and at the very end written and directed by Kimberly Pierce so I and I was like wait a minute this may be something that is actually tangible for me to do and so I researched I just threw the LSAT out I literally did and uh I looked up Gina and Kimberly's history because I had no idea how do you get into film well I just know that I want to tell stories. I just don't know how to do it, um, don't have the technique, or don't even know where to start. And so I just researched where they went to school, UCLA and Columbia, uh, Columbia uh, for Gina and, and Kim, you know, um, respectively. And then I looked up NYU and USC. And so I was like, oh, these seem to be the top ones. Let me apply to grad school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, okay, why not? And, uh, but when I had, I had determined after watching those films was that I was going to move to Los Angeles no matter what. And I had uh, my own personal D-Day, my own departure date. And that was May 26, 2001. 
And I knew after I graduated in May um, 2000 from Ole Miss uh, that, you know, I'm like, I have that amount of time to raise as much money as possible because I'm driving to Los Angeles to live, to go pursue a career (laughs) in film and television. And, um, And I substitute taught in between. And the thing was, I wasn't making, you know, any money, but I managed to save up my little 1200 bucks and uh, <laughs> get my apartment founded online in Koreatown. It was 900 bucks a month for, you know, for a studio. And I had no job, nothing, just an unpaid internship that I'd found online. And I was willing to make that journey uh, because I believed in what was what film could do and what I could do um and but as as I was preparing to get you know closer to that May 26th date um I got my got letters coming in UCLA no <laughs> and I was like okay that hurt <laughs> then Columbia no I'm like oh god what am I gonna do now <laughs> and I'm like that's the two where these women went and then I'm, you know, I see, okay, well, we keep on trekking on down. And I'm like, NYU. Um, no. <laughs> and I'm like, I've got one letter that's out, and that's USC. And I'm like, I kept those rejection letters, took them with me. I'm like, I'm leaving anyway. I haven't heard from USC yet. And I left and went on that journey and moved to Los Angeles. And um, I became a telemarketer selling meat over the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, to be the vegetarians in California, you can imagine how uh, high my sales were. Um, you know, but I took whatever job, the first job I could get, because I'm like, I got, I knew I had to hustle immediately. And after getting off work one day, I had all my mail, of course, forwarded to Los Angeles. I look in, I see a packet, feels thick, and it's USC, and it's like, congratulations, you got in. Um, and I had, you know, I walked out on faith to go do that. And uh, because of these two women, because of Gina and Kim and the work that they made, I stepped out on faith and took a chance at a dream, not even knowing where to start. And to end up with, you know, getting into USC's grad program for film and television um, was something that I needed. And, you know, it's something that I always think about now. With those rejection letters, I kept them uh, because it's not about the no's you get. It's about the one yes. And uh, USC gave me that yes. And that was enough to open the door to help me get started with my career. Wow. What an amazing story. And I got to ask, too, because, you know, you mentioned Love and Basketball and Gina Prince-Bythewood as someone who inspired you. And you two were actually on a panel together over at San Diego Comic-Con. So did you have like a fangirl moment with her? How was that experience like? I had a fangirl moment with her years ago. Um, It was weird. When I was at SC, she came to talk. I was too scared to approach her. So I was in the back of the classroom you know, hugging the wall because the seats were all taken. And I was like, okay, I'm in between my classes. I just said I was going to the bathroom, but I wanted to see (laughs) Gina. But I was too afraid to do it. And we, um, years later, after I graduated, I think 2005, maybe around 2008 or so. uh, No, actually in 2010, so I'm sorry. I'm getting all my time mixed up. But um, Ava DuVernay actually 
you know, we were sitting at a Sundance event and Gina was there to talk um, to the filmmakers about kind of her journey and give advice. We can ask questions. And I'm sitting there across from the, the woman who in, changed my life, who changed everything in the trajectory, trajectory of where I was headed. And, um, and I was so afraid to talk to her. And Ava was like, uh-uh, come over here. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm, I said, I'm going to freak out, man. And, you know, and so she was like, hey, Gina, this is Tina. Just wanted y'all to meet. And then I've never wanted to kind of really gush, you know, over some, you know, over talent or filmmakers. Like, I love them and I try to hold it in. Like, there's no, you know, even though that you have that admiration um, for them. But with Gina, I couldn't take it. I, I told her, I said, I'm sorry. I'm about to cry. Uh, and, I said, <laughs> and I was like, I do not cry like this. I don't know what's wrong with me, but thank you for making that film. You changed everything in my life and let me know that I could do this, that it is possible, that I could have made, I could make a feature film, that I could do all of these things because you helped set that path and seeing your name is powerful and moving and meeting you now it had been 10 years since i'd seen it you know and that followed your career but at 10 years later i get a chance to meet the person that one of the people that changed my life and uh, shortly thereafter i met kimberly pierce um wow <laughs> and uh, uh, and I went up to, yeah, I know, right? I'm like, yeah, okay. I'm like, okay. I met her and I was like, okay, I got to go to her. I'm like, forget this voice. I'm crying. Get, you know, buck up girl. And I went up to her and I started talking and I said, oh my God, I'm about to cry again. I'm like, oh shit. Oh shoot. Okay. Wait, edit point. I'm about to cry again. And Kim is like, no, that's if you're gonna cry, don't worry about it. I'm a crier too. Let's cry together. So she hugged me, and we were both. <laughs> I know we were sitting at that outfest event, and everybody was looking at us like crying in the middle of the room in a happy event. <laughs> and you know, and I was, and I did the same thing and said the same thing to her because she did equally do that. And these two women today are my, you know, mentors to me. These, um, these are women that I can pick up the phone and call, and. Um, will give me advice on anything that I need, help me look at a project, read my script, um, open up their home. I mean, Kim basically is like, come to my house if you need a place to write, <laughs> I need to get away. If I'm not there, here's a key. Uh, you know, she, this, this is a dream. That's something that you don't get. Um, people who move your life in a different direction, a direction of your dreams and not of a, uh, not into the direction where you thought was going to be a safe path and to actually be able to not only call them colleagues and peers, but at the same time to be able to connect with them on personal levels and connect with them on a professional level where they become you know, your advocate and they definitely champion you as you go across and try to tell you the things they've done um, to correct, you know, stop you from making the same mistakes or take advantage of this or let, you know, here's my opinion. And, and that has been um, a dream come true. And it's definitely been something that's impacted me and how I look at my own film career and what, how I look back on helping generations that are coming behind us. That's beautiful, and now I'm crying. I know. <laughs> I'm not you crying. You're me? crying. Yeah, you're crying. <laughs> well, I want a hug so 
somebody. I can't. <laughs> virtual hug. hug. Virtual hug. I'm like, like hugging my spring. <laughs> You know, speaking <laughs> of advocates and people championing for women, Ava DuVernay, you have a very significant relationship with her. Your your feature film, Mississippi Damned, like I mentioned before, it's available on Netflix, so check that out. Um, but that was distributed by Ava DuVernay's Array Company, and I wanted to know uh, if you can tell us a little bit about that distribution deal, how that came about, and also your work with her while directing episodes of Queen Sugar. Uh, yeah, um, we uh, made a film in two that, that came out in 2009 called Mississippi Damned. Um, as you mentioned, it's on Netflix now. Uh, but what we had, we had a very difficult time uh, getting distribution. Uh, we had spent $500,000 to make that movie um, out of our own pockets. Wow. And um, what we were getting were offers in the very low thousands. <laughs> and Yikes. the reason why that was happening at the same time, another great film came out, Precious, same time. Mm. And we were told by these distributors that, you know, two black dramas can exist in the market at the same time. We all know that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> we know. I'm like, the market can't bear two black films? Oh, my God, really? <laughs> I, I, I don't <laughs> think that that's possible. And, um, you know, so that... They have made that choice, but Ava had seen the film on the festival circuit. She really loved it and, you know, was started championing it at a very early stage. And um, she helped get it on Showtime in 2011. You know, that was something she wanted people to see the movie for it to go beyond the festival circuit. And she never forgot about the film and remained an ally to me. And uh, when she got her deal at Netflix through Array, you know, with Array, um, she got Mississippi Dam uh, put on there um, and they bought it. And that's been something that has been extremely great for us because it's been a rebirth of the film and people get a chance to see it who had never heard of it. They get a chance to have that experience. And, you know, I get a chance to people write me, they call, you know, they, how they're affected by the movie, how they can't shake it. And because of that, I feel, you know, that I've done a good job with that film uh, because it's doing the same thing and did the same thing that Gina's film and Kimberly's film did for me. And um, to see that affect others is something that um, is something you really can't put into words or quantify in any kind of way. Um, and as far as Queen Sugar, because, you know, there you go, Ava again, always, <laughs> always <laughs> helping the community and always looking out. Um, she said, hey, I got a series <laughs> called Queen Sugar. Hey, do you, she's like, do you want to do it? Uh, she said, I would love for you to come on as a producer, a writer, and a director. And she's like, I don't want you to start at the staff writer position. You already know what you're doing. So let's come in at the producer level and, and, let's, and let's do it. And I immediately said, yes. <laughs> it was no you know, and, and it was something that I was passionate about because the irony of everything is that two weeks prior, I was thinking about giving it up, giving up. Wow. Um, it was such a, cause it was a hard journey and you know, you fight, you battle. And, you know, you know, I'd look back at those rejection letters from those schools, like, doesn't matter about the nose. Don't forget. Keep going. Keep going. And, you know, you learn to take that rejection. And then you get to a point where you're, you know, I've been out here for 
13 years, is it going to happen? And um, I, you know, I was like, I think I might drop out. And my friends and my family were like, uh-uh, uh-uh, we ain't going to let you do that. <laughs> and I was like, and they were like, now, if you told us you were going to sing, we would say, well, baby, yeah, you might want to pick another occupation. Because I can't sing with, with, for nothing. So, but, you know, they were saying, you're too talented of a writer and a filmmaker to give up. And, you know, just having that support um, from people, you know, I waited those two weeks out. And the next thing you know, ring, ring, there's Ava. And so you never know at the how far it is as you go and you dig and you dig and you dig, trying to get to where you're trying to go. You, know, you never know how close you are to it. And the irony is that after that, the next week, Gina called me to offer me a position on Shots Fired. Mm. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> uh, blessings uh, right upon blessings position. right there. I, I know, and I had to say no to that blessing because <laughs> I had signed already. I had signed, you know, on with Queen Sugar, and they won't let you do, you know, two shows at one time, at least at my level for sure. Um, you know, that you're, ex you're completely exclusive. And so I couldn't do it. So for me to have to turn out another ally, um, a person who has become a friend, someone who's changed my life and have to say no to shots fired, that was the hardest thing ever. Um, because I really, I was like, can I do both shows? I think I can, I know I can do both. I'm like, I, I, like telling my agent, I can make this work. <laughs> but networks are quite the same on that. But, um, you know, but I think that is something that really um, is something that's a lesson to me. And it's something that I now try to not only tell myself, but I also try to tell others is keep hustling. And Gina would always tell me that. She tells me that to this day, keep hustling. She's like, I'm still hustling. And you think about her career. And that woman says she still hustles. Mm. Um, and so I just, you know, I never forget that and I always I'm like just keep hustling get the work do the work make it good work keep going hustle fight for your projects and so uh all of those things you know combined really made um getting into television and being able to be a part of something that you know Ava had created with Queen Sugar and what was offered on a very powerful show like Shots Fired by Gina for them both to come to me um, to offer me an opportunity that I was never getting from anyone else is something that I I can't thank them enough for that. They um, they're once again changing lives lives. I mean, you're you're changing everyone's life by giving them a chance when no one else would do it, and and you didn't forget and you reached back. And so I'm forever grateful to those two women and for what they do in this community and what they do to fight to do that. And, you know, I got a chance in Queen Sugar to really see Ava, um, you know, season one, I was with the show and to see, you know, not only her passion, but saying, I'm hiring all females to direct. That's it. <laughs> the end. I mean, uh, if you know Ava, she's completely steadfast. Like, it's not about, I'm not waiting to be invited. I'm going to do it myself. I'll build my own table. I'm not going to wait for you to invite me to your dinner if you don't want me there. Um, she'll take it upon herself. And she hired all of us. We had, you know, she had so many options of directors to pick from that 
there were not enough episodes to get all these black women <laughs> to direct. And so hence, we already knew when season two comes around, which we were like, we don't know yet, but we are very confident in the stories that we're telling that season two will happen. It's going to be a whole new crop of directors because we still have to go through all of these talented women who are not getting that opportunity to get into episodic directing for television. So, um, you know, for me, being able to direct um, on this show was something that I knew going in she wanted me to do. Uh, but the shocker was she wanted me to actually do the last two episodes of season one. And I'm like, you want me to do the finale? I thought she was directing it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm just in the writing room and we're producing, but I didn't, you know, I didn't expect that. And she, you know, she was like, you know, this show, you know, better than anyone. And, um, yeah, I trust you to handle the finale of our season one. So, um, yeah, just make us proud. And, you know, and that was something that, you know, I was, that was the first time I ever did anything for episodic television. And I was shooting two episodes at once block shooting. So imagine, you know, here's someone who's a complete novice in that particular realm of, you know, episodic directing, getting tossed in with like, here's 12 pages a day and here's two episodes. And one of them's the finale, by the way. <laughs> so the pressure was high, but the thing was the faith was high also because I had to think about, you know, you know, tell myself, you know how to make a good film. You know, you know how to connect with characters. You know how to talk to actors. You know where to put the camera. It's the same thing. We just happen to be in a different industry, I'm in a different sector of our industry that moves at a different speed and in a different way. But it always comes back to, do you understand what's going on with the work and do you emotionally connect to it? And after sitting you know, in that writing room as a producer and a writer, Queen Sugar was something and is still something that um, remains close to my soul. Um, so to have the opportunity to direct those last two episodes and to be able to write two episodes through the season and just happen to be in that room every day working hard and making sure that we always um, kind of handled Ava's mantra of think about before we ever break story, what are we trying to say with it? And so to always have that question in mind and, you know, really all of us wanting to make sure that not only that does she succeed, but the show succeed because of how much it really means and how much is hanging on that. And she's taken a chance on all of us and we didn't want to let her down. And obviously, I don't think we did. We got a season two and now they got a season three. So no one's letting her down. It's going on. <laughs> you did not let anybody down. <laughs> yeah, it was beautiful. But, you know, but we all wanted to work so hard to make sure that we had the show that we all felt emotionally connected to when we all got hired. And we wanted to give that and make sure that showed up on the screen. So what would you say your greatest personal challenge is as a filmmaker? Um, I would say that my greatest personal challenge um, really has been the freedom to create the types of projects that I want to. Um, there are just times where, where, you know, I am either, you know, given a project that I don't feel like I've connect, I connect to or, 
you know, here are the here are the stories that I feel that need to be told. And so, like, I have two series now that do that for me, and one of them is called Lamb, and it's about two um, friends, two women of color who have to go on the run um, across the country after an official is killed, and it deals with eminent domain, it deals with politics, it deals with self-identity. Of, of how you have to move across this country, giving a cross-section of what you see. Um, and the other one was a series that, you know, that's something I really want to create. It's called Intake. And it's about a kind of a dis disillusioned group home boys counselor who is about to go out of the system and leave this kind of really kind of problematic um, arena, but her younger sister gets thrown into the system so she can't mm -hmm. leave. Um, and so those are two series that I really want to create. <laughs> and so hopefully, <laughs> and it's not even hopefully, I know they will find the right home one day. Um, and I think we all can look at Mad Men, think about that, 10 years before that got on. I mean, it's, it's so, you just have to take your time and believe in what you're creating. And those are two stories that that really stick with me. And uh, Intake was something that was born out of, I worked at a boys group home after I graduated from SC. You know, you walk out of college, you don't exactly, as a writer director, nobody's ha handing you a job. It's not happening. <laughs> so you, know, you gotta find all these odd jobs. And I was working at a boys group home and the experience, I had no idea I was going to be making a show or trying to make a show about it. I was just writing Mississippi Dam at night. <laughs> That's what I was doing at that group home. And, you know, but the family that we developed, the hardships, where these kids came from, you know, the fun that we had with them, what was wrong with our system. These are all things that I wanted to explore in a series that I felt like people would be hungry for and not only to become a voice for uh, those kids and for those families, but at the same time, educate those who don't know anything about it and entertain you with what, how we felt as counselors working with those boys and working also with the girls group home. Wow. So speaking of stories like this, um, when you're telling stories that involve black pain and survival, what's most important to you about how you structure the narrative? or how you present it? Well, for me, I think it's most important to know, it's most important about who is telling the story. Right. Uh, who is actually doing this? And our voices and our perspectives need to be heard. And for me, I grew up, I didn't quite see on the screen uh, people that look like me or had my experience. And when I did happen to see a glimpse of it, it was told and you could tell from someone who had never lived that life. You can, it, it lacked authenticity. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, as you know, looking at my life as going through, yeah, black pain and survival. I mean, I think that's something that we're all dealing with, especially now within this political climate more than anything else too. Mm -hmm. um, but it's something that is time that, you know, that we speak for those who are marginalized, who can't speak for themselves. And so for me, telling stories of Black pain and survival and who is telling that story is extremely important because of the perspective they're coming with. Um, 
something mm -hmm. and kind of going back to the authenticity. I mean, I, I usually, you know, in my films or what I do, I don't sugarcoat life. I tell life like it is. Life has joys, life has pain. Um, why just make everything, you know, um, palatable necessarily? It's okay to make an audience a little uncomfortable to make them question certain things about themselves or to sometimes heal them. And, you know, it brings bravery to others when you're authentic. And Mississippi Dam was something that because it was based on my life and my family's life, it was something that was extremely authentic and precious to me, um, that I wanted to not sugarcoat what we went through as a family, no matter if we were showing the pain and the survival. But we also you know, showed the laughter that they have and the love they had between each other. And because I think we took the time with that story to make sure that we were staying true to who these characters were, what the story was about, I think it ended up becoming something that the audience felt. People were driving, like, we'd show in Atlanta, and then, like, the next week, we're showing in Savannah. It's not an easy drive. And then I see the same person, and she's brought, like, three other people with her. She's like, oh, we made the drive tonight. <laughs> we made that drive. We'll drive it back. And I'm like, I can't believe you're seeing this film again. Wow. You just drove five <laughs> hours to come see this film, and then you got to stay two hours to watch it. Then we're going to talk, and then you're going to drive five hours back. That, I mean, like, that is completely, uh, and to see that's, to have that impact, that was incredible. And I, and I always have to kind of tell the most impactful um, story that I've had with Mississippi Dam of being able to tell a story that's telling it from a perspective of someone who actually went through it or understands or is close to um, these stories that have black, have black pain and survival is we screened at the DGA. And as you know, it's like, you know, they have, we were actually at Outfest and we got the big theater, you know, with like 700 seats. And I'm shocked that, you know, everybody it's sold out. I'm like, wow. Okay, cool. <laughs> like, and I'm nervous <laughs> as I can be. And so we get up on stage after the film screens, people, you know, really they give it a standing ovation. Everything is going like, I'm, completely humbled by it and as I'm sitting on the stage this woman stands up and she's probably like in her late 60s and she said I just wanted to thank you for making this movie I was molested when I was a child and I never told anyone about it until now mm. and you made a movie that made me feel safe enough that I could say that she told 699 strangers her story because a film made her feel safe to do it. And that's the power that we have with film that we can't underestimate it or treat it lightly all the time. You're affecting people. And to have that has one of, been one of the greatest honors, just knowing how that impacted that woman, it's been one of the greatest honors of my life. Yeah, that it, the authenticity of Mississippi Dam, it, it was one of those movies that, stuck with me. Um, I am a serial rewatcher of it. So, um, it actually helped me come to terms with some of the um, pain that I've dealt with within my family. So when you were saying that it's about authenticity, you can tell the difference. So I definitely agree. And I also thank you for making oh, thank, it. Thank you. Thank you. Kind of going back to your answer to Tori's first question about wanting to create the stories that you want to make. 
I noticed on a Twitter chat that you were a part of, I think it was Ask Her Film hashtag, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. you had mentioned that you like to dive into more genres, specifically science fiction. So what are your dream po projects in sci-fi and, and what kind of stories do you want to create in that genre? Well, I mean, I think the one, one of the major reasons of why, I mean, I love sci-fi um, is one thing. <laughs> and then the two, <laughs> I look at the canon of types of films that are coming out by people of color and women. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure that I want, if I want to go to a movie and go see an action movie, it's, you know, I can have a black you can have a black lead <laughs> a black director that has that you know or if i want to go see sci-fi that movie is actually in existence or that series is in existence and that's why for me like i'm like really super excited and it encourages me like that macro partnered with victoria mahoney and with ava mm. um to do dawn by octavia butler i mean yes. she's like I mean, like, that's something, I mean, is extremely powerful. And the, the fact that they are trying to turn that into a series. I mean, that's an example of of changing that, the landscape and having those dream projects or having, you know, dream projects in sci-fi seem very possible and realistic because I, too, love Octavia Butler. And um, after this, um, I don't know, Rebecca... Theodore uh, at Film Fatale yep. um, NYC. I'll give her, <laughs> give her, gotta give back a, She put an entire list of like all black sci-fi movies and put them on Facebook and and just let you know like here's all of these stories that we have to tell within sci-fi that we haven't. And uh, you know I and that's something that I was like oh you actually opened my eyes to certain stories I didn't even know existed. That I'm like I gotta go find this book. I mean, Amazon has gotta somehow <laughs> give it to me in some kind of way. But um, so I really appreciate Rebecca for doing that and to educate and um, give us all knowledge on what's going on and what kind of material is actually out there. And you know, for me, you know, the material that I was familiar with was Octavia and. You know, for me, I really would love to see her parable series turned into yes. turned into a television series. Yes, um, <laughs> I I really want to do it, um, and you know, because I mean, it's the themes that it has. Um, you know, yeah. it talks about compassion. You know, you have this difficult trait. You know, of this of our main her main character being hyper em empathetic. You know, and she can literally feel the pain of others. Um, and I think that's something like right now, compassion, I'm feeling that right now. And I feel the pain of what our country is going through. We just saw that this weekend in Charlottesville. Um, and we are all, I think a lot of us are empathetic to what happened and charged. Um, because just like the character in Octavia's book and parables, this character knows how bad it can be. And she does anything she can to help people. Um, and another one of the themes that attracted me was gender. Uh, she, this character faces sexual violence and, you know, her status as a woman in this world, being by herself makes her vulnerable in the series. But, you know, there's strength that is found in that. And the reason why she ends up building her own community, which is also something that is thematic in it, that draws me to it. And even though we're living in the sci-fi world, these are really real world issues that are universal themes that we all can relate to. Um, and so I think that, you know, I'm excited of where, you know, Dawn is going to go. Um, 
as Ava and Victoria continue to push that and make that a series. And I'm just excited to see what else comes out because it can only to show that the wealth and the depth of what's going on in sci-fi um, with black with black protagonists is something that's important. And for me, Parable is something that really hits that and. I can't quite shake it. <laughs> when I can't shake, when I can't shake it, it's always a good sign that <laughs> that I'm in, that I'm falling in love with something, and that that's where you fight your battles um, to try to make sure that those things get made, whether you are happen to be ahead of it or not, but to make sure and champion others as they're doing that. Yeah, you know, we here at Black Girl Nerds are so excited. For the Dawn Project and big fans of Octavia Butler. And, you know, speaking of nerdy and geeky things, I, I did have the pleasure of meeting you over at San Diego Comic Con, which was <laughs> <Yeah>. awesome. <laughs> um, it was nice. <laughs> and I, I really love your panel. You did this fantastic panel with Gina and Victoria um, and, and so many other women about filmmaking. So I wanted to know, um, was this your first con and did you get a chance to do anything fun and nerdy while you were there? It was my first Comic-Con. I had never been. Um, and I'm like, I live two hours away. <laughs> Why have I wow. never been? <laughs> um, you know, but I, I never quite, you know, understood. And I always got the date mixed up or I was doing some other project. And so it was an experience that, you know, I didn't get a chance to really delve into the true fan experience of the work, you know, because of doing the panel and I was there for a short period of time. Um, but I did kind of get a chance to live vicariously through Gina's son, <laughs> who got a chance to, he went around to everything. He knew every panel, every, every, where to go get this t-shirt, where to go get that. So he was a good, he was a good guide on that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but that to see, even just see him as a fan, just, you know, invigorated and, you know, set up, it's infectious. And so for me, I did get a chance to kind of bring out my nerdy side, which, you know, I love. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just embracing it. Yes, I'm a nerd. Um, and, you know, but I did rack up on some Game of Thrones shirts and T-shirts, you nice. know, and hats and whatnot <laughs> um, to do that and trying to find the most female-centric <laughs> parts of those shirts uh, from Game of Thrones where you have those characters um, like Danny. Um you know, who are very powerful women in that series. And so for, you know, to have that and to be able to geek out <laughs> over having a Game of Thrones hat, but just having uh, you either live or <laughs> you live or you die mm -hmm. in this game on the hat, you know, I'm like, this is all, this is up my alley. So when people, if they ask me about it as I'm wearing the hat, they got to push me away because I'm going to talk too long about Game of Thrones. I'm like obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to have you come back where we just talk about Game of Thrones the whole episode. I, yes, exactly. <laughs> I have watched I have watched that series completely, probably about five times from beginning really? to end, and pick up yeah, and pick and I go back and visit Six Feet Under as well as another series. That was a great um, show. I, I revisit. Yeah, I revisit it. I mean, you look at really great writing or great characters or things that entertain you in a way or. In a, in a way that you haven't been uh, or introduce you to worlds you haven't seen. You know, I'm like, 
keep watching it, learn from it, and learn how smart storytelling is because there are things in both series where they'll bring up something in season one and then season four, (laughs) they bring it back around. Yes, I love it. It pays off. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's smart writing. Mm -hmm. And that is, that's extremely, for the fans especially, we're like, oh yeah, we know. (laughs) We go back and (laughs) we geek out on it. But I mean, like, to me, it's like, I've always, I don't want to spoil Game of Thrones and John's lineage for anyone, so I'm not going to say it, but it's mm-hmm. something that has been there. Yes, yes <laughs> it has. Season one, when when Ned is talking to Robert, and when he says what he's saying, and when he when he tells also John before he takes the black, I mean, we'll talk about your mother, and to right. know what that meant, and the integrity, and what, and then even his, you know, his death in the episode Baylor. Um, season like once again, season one, episode nine. See, there I am. Listen to you. (laughs) (laughs) She has the receipts, like not just the season, the exact episode. (laughs) She's about to tell us thirty minutes in. Thirty minutes in, the scene was set. (laughs) I I really probably can do that. I'm telling you, I, I. I can't help it. I mean, it's it's just when you look at television and I just love to rewatch things to learn, especially when you can find something new every time yeah. that you watch it. It's like, that's what I really love. And Six Feet Under was a, sh- is a show that does that, um, that did that for me. And so I, I go back to it yearly uh, to watch that, The Wire, you know, things oh, yes. that have been very pivotal to me as a writer director. And also just as a fan of them to see how things are laid out. And I believe, you know, those are parts where we as filmmakers, by doing those things, we hone our craft and we get better at our craft. And you look at your writing and your filmmaking to see if the shows and the movies that stick with you that you love and that you are willing to stay up for if it happens to come on at two o'clock in the morning, like you can't help but to watch it. Um, that's that's what you you know I think it's it behooves us as filmmakers to go and research that to go and fill these series so that we can do the same thing I completely agree speaking of I guess audience reactions to series um what is your main hope for um an audience receiving your work or viewing work that you've contributed to well I know I've kind of already kind of gone over but Really, it's to see themselves. Uh, that's the main hope that I have for an audience that, you know, is viewing work that I've contributed to and even work that I haven't. Um, but, you know, that's one of the things I want people to do that. I grew up not seeing myself, as I said before. And for me, growing up in a small town of Tupelo, Mississippi, and we didn't have any money. It wasn't like I was going to travel the world. It wasn't like I was going to be able to go out really outside of town, like going to Memphis. That was some big city right there. Um, (laughs) uh, Like Jackson. Oh Lord, we really doing it. You know, (laughs) I think anytime you have your town, you're in your hometown and you have to say, Oh, I live in the country. We're going to town. You want something from the grocery store? You know you live in a small place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you going to town. You have um, to tell people the name of the city close to you because they don't know. 
They don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm like, I, I'm going with colleges like, do you know where the University of Mississippi is? Okay, go 45 miles east. Right. <laughs> you know, but, you know, it was just one of those things because if you don't have a chance to get outside of your environment, you end up in a bubble. And for me, television and film allowed me to see the world. It allowed me to travel. It taught me. I mean, I know how to tie a tie because of Sam on a different, you know, different strokes. <laughs> I really taught him how to tie one. Uh, so, you know, like things like that. It's so weird, but they, um, it was a way that I could educate myself, um, that I could see different perspectives more than what was being presented to me day to day. Um, by my community and I liked that I got a chance to, to vicariously you know through these films and through these tv shows see different perspectives of people and um and that's something that really did really did teach me so um diverse voices you know really have the power to reflect more experiences uh, and that's what you know, I tried to gravitate toward as much as I could when it was there. And even when it wasn't trying to um, make sure that I still was getting something from it, even if it's just entertainment, but that I was still learning something from it. So um, it's very important to me that, you know, the hope is that every audience member can at some point in their lifetime and hopefully multiple times in their life, sit down and see themselves on screen. God, I love this discussion. Right. <laughs> I, I, I'm so inspired. No, it, 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 I mean, for selfish reasons, I wanted you on this show because I went to film school myself and, and I, I want to always hear about other filmmakers that made it and how they got from point A to point B. And I just really love your story and I really appreciate you sharing it with us. Um, so thank you, Tina, so much. Can you let our listeners know where they can find you on the interwebs and also give us your social media shout outs? Yeah, I'm, I'm very simple with my name. So it's at Tina Mabry <laughs> <laughs> on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, I don't, I unfortunately do not have an inventive name. Um, and also my, the company, uh, that I'm with Morgan smart, uh, you can find that at Morgan smart. Once again, <laughs> me not being able to contribute to the, you know, the inventive quirky, uh, handles, but you'll find it at Morgan smart. Um, you'll see that on IG, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Excellent. Thank you so much, Tina. I loved this. You And you have to totally come back and we can just talk about Game of Thrones all day. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about Game of Thrones, talk about different things. But, you know, I think that, you know, one of the things that hopefully that your listeners will be able to know is that, you know, that there will be struggles, there will be resistance, there will be no's. And, but, you know, look at the things that you can't accomplish if you just hold in there. I'm like doing the hate you give with George Tillman now, you know, being able to direct the mayor, insecure, dear white people, queen of the South, queen sugar, melody. I mean, it's just like, it's, you know, and I got another show that's coming up that I'm going to direct, but I can't say cause I'm very like paranoid. Don't want to jinx it until I sign a contract. <laughs> <laughs> it's always, I don't know. I'm always like that, man. I don't know. Um, and so, but to be able to, 
you know, I've had a chance to have that experience and I want to make sure that the people coming behind me um, are having the same one. And so, and I too want whatever I can, what little knowledge I can give to someone um, who may ask me about, you know, getting into this industry or how do they navigate this or that. Um, I will tell you every mistake I feel like I have made in my career. And I would tell you every good decision I think I made in my career. And I would also just encourage, like, we are not in competition with each other Thank in this you. industry. Yes, We are not. It's, um, I, I mean, so it does not matter to me. It makes me proud when I see Ryan Coogler do Black Panther. It makes me proud to know Gina's doing Silver and Black. You know, it makes me proud that Ava did A Wrinkle in Time. Um, and it's very easy to sit back as a filmmaker. You can be like, oh, wait a minute. I didn't get a $100 million film offer. Why would I Why would I get upset about that for? Right. No, these are people of color making it happen and women making it happen. And it's like, this is only opening the door more for all of us. Don't have the crab in a bucket mentality. See where you can lift someone else up. Can I give you a step, girl? You can step on the back if you need to get up. You know, like, you need to get up higher. <laughs> you know? and, and that's what's important. It's like, because your time will come with whatever yes. it's meant to be within your career. But just, I mean, you cannot, we cannot hate on each other. We have to unify. And we have to continue to keep that. And don't lose that mentality and that we pass that down to everybody in our industry that's coming behind us. And also look at it in our personal lives. Because that's something that is extremely effective. And that's where our stories come from and originate from, real life. And so I think that's something that we have to look at and that especially now, especially within our country, we really have to take a look at that and unify. Um, and that's a unity that's going over a lot of different uh, groups to combat the hatred that we're getting our way. So, um, but just making sure that people don't give in to the no's or the resistance, keep fighting and support one another, lean on each other. And that's how we'll make it through. That's beautiful. I am with the Oprah Winfrey doctrine. I'm paraphrasing this, but Oprah Winfrey once said that the most successful people are people that work to help others become successful. So yeah. that, I live by that every day. <laughs> and I mean, and Oprah's like that. I mean, like you talk about a geek out moment. Meeting her was a geek out moment for me. But <laughs> that oh, was wow. the, like, I, I, was I would like, probably die. <laughs> I was just like, I, I don't really know what to do. Is she really at this birthday party pouring me a shot of very expensive tequila? I cannot believe it. Wow. And she's like, here, take two. What? I'm like, I'm like, Oprah's so cool. <laughs> I'm like, so yeah, that that was, I think, the most by far, like, yeah. craziest moment where I just was dumbfounded and just said, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. <laughs> Everything from Mississippi just came back. And I'm like, girl, you from Kosciuszko. You know what's up. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but oh, that's right. That's, yeah, to see the success of others. And she's doing that. And she's done that, you know, with with several people and she's yeah. doing it with Ava. She, Ava's passing it down too. Yes. So just keep on with that. I think that's a good mantra that we all should um, just say to ourselves and have in front of us every day. Excellent. Thank you so much. This was, this is fantastic. It really was really enjoyed it talking really to you. It really was. It's like you said, I can't be more inspired. And she was like, all right, let me see. If I can. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. 
wasn't trying to. It was just, I'm just having, you guys are such fun to talk to and it's so relaxing and so refreshing to have. So, um, you know, it's, I just get so excited and happy about it. So thank you guys for, for having this broadcast, this podcast, making sure that you have this arena for people. So thank you guys so much. Thank you. Monica Owusu Breen is well known for her work on series such as Charmed, Alias, Brothers and Sisters, Lost, and Fringe. The Lost writing staff, including Breen, were nominated for the Writers Guild of America Award for Best Dramatic Series in February 2007 for their work on the second and third seasons. Since 2013, Monica has also been a writer and co-executive producer on Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Currently, she's the TV showrunner behind the supernatural drama TV series on NBC called Midnight Texas, based on the book of the same name by author Charlene Harris, who also wrote the Southern Vampire Mysteries based on the True Blood TV series. Midnight Texas premiered on July 24th of this year. Um, so I wanted to, well, first, let me just start by, um, I was looking at your um, background and you have worked on some of my favorite shows, Charm, Fringe. <laughs> so I, I really always like meeting other uh, women of color who are working in the sci-fi world because, you know, that's not very common. So it's very oh, awesome. I do know. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I'm so sure you know all too well. <laughs> there's so many of us. That it's very interesting sometimes. <laughs> you know, this isn't a small population. Right, there's... Exactly, exactly. So, yes, I, I thought that was interesting. And we actually worked on a similar show, uh, the same show. I worked in television for um, for actually quite a few years, but out of Atlanta, and I worked on the first season of Revolution. And I saw that you oh. also... Revolution. Yes. yes. It was an interesting experience. As you notice, my time there was short. Um, yes. People, and I feel yes. like the things I brought to the table weren't necessarily the things that show was was really excited about doing, and it was a really fun show. Um, but that's the other thing about writing; it's so subjective, mm-hmm. and so you know, bring your skills to the table and hope they work. And if they exactly. don't, no foul. Let's find new home. So you know, but. I love Eric and, you know, it was a really fun show. Yes, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I was actually a location, um, locations assistant. Oh, cool. So it was, it was very interesting. We were filming in the, the capital in Georgia, the Atlanta, the capital downtown here. And that was, a, oh. that was an interesting experience as well. <laughs> I think I might have written that episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was that was interesting. Kind of managing that process as a locations person in the capital, oh, sword see. fighting. Uh, that must have been tough, though. Like, it, were they yes. protective of the of the history? Um, well, the the people who the city people were protective, but the crew not as much. So that's, yeah, that's exactly like. <laughs> yeah, so there was in historic areas is really hard. Because, like, we have to poke holes. Right. (laughs) Like, you can't Um, drop those swords on the floors. They've been here for 800 years. Exactly. Exactly. Um, When worlds collide. But, yeah. (laughs) 
Yes, I thought that was interesting. So um, I did have a chance to look at the episode last night and I liked it a lot. Um, I wanted to just kind of dive in because one of the first things that came to my mind, um, I know, you know, there's a there's a nice time gap between when you film the show and create the show and then when yeah. it kind of is released to the wild. Yeah. Um, so I just want to know like what were your thoughts when you know you kind of either did the math or just were called or kind of figured out that this particular episode would be airing at this time where we're in this Um, place in the world here's the thing because i before i became a writer i used to study television and media and its intersections with culture Mm -hmm. so this weekend, I freaked out, and I called them on Monday morning and said, we have to talk about this. Because here's the thing, like, is there, I know that I'm in a conversation with a fan base, with audience. And so depending on what the audience is going through, things are read differently or more affecting or less affecting. Um, so it wasn't, you know, this was written... This was written last fall. There was no sense of what ended up becoming a zeitgeist um, Mm -hmm. or a little bit of a growing sense, but it wasn't as palpable. And just this weekend, I mean, honestly, it was Virginia and the tragedy in Virginia, and it just felt like to ignore that this episode is coming out in this historic moment is disingenuous and irresponsible to the feelings of the fans watching. That is very, it's awesome and very refreshing to hear, you know, you having that perspective. I'm sure your um, background in multiples of ways has attributed to you at least thinking and being that intentional and kind of thoughtful about it. Um, I mean, I'm also a really emotional viewer. I'm a fan first, writer second. And I love characters. And it's really hard to watch them go through things. But you as a fan follow a story and it's fun turns and twists and hope that your you know, heroes succeed and live. But when it intersects with an actual event that is real and, and painful, the viewing experience just you you have to honor that relationship between the show, the characters, and the fans. That's really important to me. And so, and it's important to me as a viewer, too. I hate being put through things for no reason. And, um, right. and I also need to trust the storyteller to, to understand that. But it's not, there's no intentionality other than to have a dialogue and to honor that relationship to our fans. Um, because I know I just rewatched the episode and it was a very different experience. It just was. I mean, I still enjoyed it. I still followed. Like, I'm so proud of that episode. Um, Bryn Malone, our writer, killed it. I think it was some of the best performances. But, um, but you know, it's coming out in a moment. Very true. Of it. That is very true. So I'm curious as far as some of the um the story, the different arcs that actually happen in there, because it was not lost on me 
that our uh, resident vampire was the one who kind of came in and provided support in Mm -hmm. this particular situation (laughs) and that he was a slave. And, um, you know, it definitely kind of in this, I think in this environment, I wouldn't have thought this otherwise, but I definitely got kind of a, a, you know, Django type of get back at your, um, the people who held you captive. It's interesting. I I see that. (laughs) You know, one of the things I think is interesting about writing Lamb is we write him as if everything is in real time for him. So Mm -hmm. the 200 years of history, he's seen so much that he doesn't carry that with him in the same way that Bobo carries his history Mm -hmm. with him. Um, It doesn't mean there's not a clear, for me, a little bit of fun in that. Um, But I think for me, it was, you know, and for when we talk about this a lot in the room, um, for the sons of Lucifer to face their deaths from that, from from being faced with some, I don't know. I mean, it felt as if, yeah, maybe, you know, it's so funny. Sorry, I'm going around in circles because sometimes you write a story from the emotional place mm-hmm. of the characters and their intention. Yes. And then you have to step back and say, okay, what dialogue am I in? How does mm-hmm. this figure? How do, what do these characters represent? And I, unfortunately, I haven't done that as much with the Lem story in this, but I, I see it. I for sure see that. And um, I don't think it was as intentional as it was Lem is the one who will protect other Midnighters at all costs. Right. And that's the part, it's funny, because if, I think if the environment of the world wasn't what it is right now, that, like, that makes total sense that he would be the one to provide support in that moment, because that's what he does. He is the one who kind of helps keeps everyone he knows he has the strength and the power and he uses that to support the residents of the town so it wasn't even like it felt it was a stretch in any you know um imagination but it's it's still that kind of a small touch of maybe poetic justice a little bit um, exactly and i think that there's you know i mean even when i watch the dailies it's certainly like you can't deny there's a little bit of pleasure in your hero decimating faces of hate mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know I mean you know I've and it's the same with you know whether Sydney Bristow kills one of her adversaries that she's been after it, there's a joy in that yes it has the historical weight and that's what makes it a little trickier and you know I love when genre goes to those places of feeling feeling like it's speaking to the world I live in, like, you know, something like A Handmaid's Tale, but it makes it, you know, makes it also very painful and it makes it tricky and people interpret things differently. And like you're saying, in this historic moment, that Lamb story takes on a different lens. Very true. And I definitely, I noticed kind of the whole, the story where it's like you have this group 
the white supremacist group and the reason why they don't like the people in midnight is because they're supernatural and it's mm-hmm. um so it's addressed in a sci-fi type of way which for me always makes me feel happy inside to see right. the issues addressed like that but l- less like a handmaid's tale which is almost sometimes i'm looking at that show like you that might happen i don't know if i need to try to set right. aside well, some money to try to <laughs> escape like that could really no, and I think, I mean, it's like that thing of watching things that make you think, that make you engage with the world, but also can be very painful. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the interesting things about episode five is, um, you know, at its core, taking it outside of this historic moment, it's about two men facing a past that they're both ashamed of. Right. And what that means to face up to it and all this ugliness. Um, and what it, what the costs are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also is... think, you know, at the same time, it's interesting because at the end of the day, I really can't, I stand by the message. And I wish the message didn't feel as necessary as it did. And I didn't anticipate it to. But, you know, a group of allies of all different types of people joining together to fight evil feels really not you know, not a bad thing to hear in this moment. That is very true. It is not. It's always, and they all accept and recognize each other's differences as we got to see, especially in the um, episode with the wear tiger and kind of everything that happened with him and how they still rallied and understood and were able to support him in spite of what happened uh, with the person that he encountered. And so it's like, that's a really great, ability to do that and that's why i think that sci-fi is so um cool because it gives you the ability to tell those stories in a way that isn't campy or isn't over the top i'm trying right. to teach you a message but you right. are it's not preachy suddenly exactly and you know and you can have fun along the way i mean one of my favorite things when i had little kids i love reading kids stories mm-hmm. because you let this wild imagination in a roundabout way take you to a place of honesty and truth and, exactly. Um, and so sci-fi and genre at this idea can let you do that. But you know, I mean, it's also very tricky and you don't you have to respect that people are going to feel differently in different places. Like this I is very watching true. what happens in episode 105 is a little more painful than it might have been. Yes, the the there's the context does change somewhat. Um, once you're looking at it. So I'm curious what, I guess, how are you guys, just as far as the team and the people that are involved with the show, are you battening down the hatches? Are you shoring up your social media? Like what are some things that you might be doing just to make sure that if someone decides to, you know, speak out that you can weather that storm? I mean, what I love about this cast is they love the show and they love the message of the show and they love each other. And it's very rare to work on a show where you pretty much kill someone every week in some sort of actions that, you know what I mean? Like it's got all those bells and whistles of those massive action you chose, but at the same time, it's got this core of a community. Mm-hmm. And they felt it and they became it. And so they are so engaged that they all came to me. And asked, what do we do? 
if no one's hiding, everyone's like, okay, what do we do? And the truth of the matter is, like, we actually found solace in seeing in Midnight when we were shooting it. Mm-hmm. This is a very diverse group of people from all different areas who came together, who live, and who respect each other and know they're better together. Very true. So, so they are just, wait, you know, I, we're still talking about, are we going to live tweet? Are we going to do... Like, we don't know specifically what we're going to do, but we're not, we're not sort of sequestering ourselves. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. And we want to know how to best address, how to best engage our fans that's not reactionary. I do feel like some people will watch the episode and enjoy it and it won't make, they won't contextualize it and other fans might. And True. so I think. One of, you know, we just want to sort of, we're, we're still talking about ways, but um, I wish I could tell you this is the plan. We don't know. <laughs> we will be talking to our fans and whether it's we're tweeting afterwards, we're doing a few interviews beforehand, but, you know, we all want to talk about it. That's the thing, too, that we all kind of, have there been moments in the past year where we've looked at each other and been like, okay, I really like being in Midnight right now. Midnight feels like a safe space. I like that, that it represents like this safe space of uh, essentially misfits, for lack of a better term, because they're people that fall outside of the, the mainstream and they all support each other. I know, and I feel like, you know, it's very rare to find a place where you get groups of We're not, there's no competition. There just is like community. Exactly. And and it's and what I love about it is it's a group of people who all are different from one another. Because it's one thing to have a community of all of you are the same, and that is lovely and important. But it's very rare on television that you feel a community of misfits, of people who are really different. Yes, and we don't get that anymore. You don't, and I always love those stories. Like, I do. I love those narratives. And for me, there's something lovely about it and empowering about it and lets it be a metaphor for all types of people. You know, it's like, you know, I have friends who are gender variants. I'm like, I love your show. And I have friends who are in other countries who say, I get this show. And what I love is it gets to be a metaphor for an idealized version of what we want for all our communities. And frankly, in my mind, the show has always kind of been the idealized version of America. True, like a true, not a necessarily a melting pot, but just a very well done salad. All the pieces That's just beautiful salad. Yeah. And you know what's great about salad? The more ingredients you have that like sing together, the better the salad is. True. Because I've had the salad that's all lettuce. Not very a salad. It's a fine salad. Sustenance. But it doesn't, it doesn't change, and it's not beautiful, you know, I don't know, it just, for me, there's a, there's an idealism to Midnight that, um, I didn't feel like it would be so idealistic, but, um, but, um, but I love, I love what it does, and I love what it reminds people, because sometimes it's really easy to lose sight of that. Yes, it is. That we can be a community in our differences. That's a possibility. And, you know, I mean, I'm also understanding that this is entertainment. 
and I don't want to diminish or minimize the tragedies and the pain either, you know, like in history, I can't. But, you know, sometimes we look to stories for a little glean, a little bit of a hope, you know. Definitely. You can't find love, you can find community, you can find peace. True. And it's very intentional. That's one thing that I say for me, it resonated with. It's like these people are doing this on purpose. Like they're not just falling into it and it happening. They're doing it with care and thoughtfulness. And that's also very important. I know. And it's like, I love, you know, there's a season two we'll explore. I love thinking about what, what Olivia's journey must have been to go from like a cold, Rageful assassin to someone who can actually have a friend and a lover and a community because I'm sure the healing process was hard. But she yes. had, she ha- and it's not over. But there's intentionality. She chose to stay and build a world despite being a person who is full of pain and rage. Very true. And, and I-, I think. Bobo also made a similar decision at some point. Yes, that was very good. Interesting to get to hear, learn a little bit more about the backstories of this, like where they're coming from and why, because everyone is not immediately obvious that they have some type of supernatural ability. Some of them just seem like regular people until something happens. And then it's like, wait, there are more, there's more to them. So I'm definitely looking forward to seeing their stories. And also for me, as a viewer and a fan of the show, the whole, the fact that the the white supremacist is no longer an issue, like that has been taken care of, it lets me know that there's going to be way worse to come. And I'm very excited to see like what the worst oh. looks like. <laughs> yes, yes. One of, the, one of the things I loved about this world Charlene created is Human evil and supernatural evil both exist. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the human evil is worse. We'll see a couple of instances in the future where there's a more human evil to be had. And then there's crazy supernatural evil. But that they're both evil. Yes. And they all need to be stopped. Exactly. And that's where, I th- that's where when they, they introduced the white supremacists and all of that, it was like, oh, so now they have to deal with regular bad guy evil. And then also we have this supernatural element that's always going to be around because, you know, then the vampires showed up and it's like, oh, wow, now they have the vampires. Which one is going to be the most difficult? And really, it looks like the white supremacists were more difficult than the vampires, which is interesting. So, I know. I and I that. think, you know, and I think that it's a... It, it was always interesting to me in like the Charlene books that it wasn't always obvious. And we actually have more supernatural evil in the television show than she did in the books. Mm-hmm. But that the human evil was sinister. What man does to man can be just as cruel as demons. And, um, and you know, I think that's, an inter- that's sort of an interesting like spin she did on the world, which I loved. Definitely. That was, I am, like I said, I, I'm sure I'm looking forward to just the end with the armadillo and the the, <laughs> yeah. the fire yeah. underneath. I was like, ooh, what does that mean? I, I can't wait. Oh, I know. Yeah, no, it gets big. It gets big. That's great. <laughs> I like big. In, I'm a, in a good way. And yes. it's interesting, too, because one of the things is, you know, it's been nice to have 10 episodes because it's 
it's it's very you can arc it out in such a way so like we come to the middle of the season and we know about half our characters and the other ones are so many surprises Mm -hmm. so i think we think we know who fiji is and she's a she actually comes like despite her positivity there's a lot of pain there and we sort of you know we build to learning all their secrets and I think that, you know, if you love these characters, you'll love them even more. And, um, that is very awesome. I'm very excited for uh, Parissa's episode because I uh, do you know her. Um, Parissa Pitsenley plays Fiji. I've, she looks familiar. I've seen, I'm familiar with her from previous uh, projects, yeah. but I, I, I'm glad to hear she has another episode coming because I feel like there's some. Yeah, no, she's a she's a special special like it's funny she um her character took the longest to cast and um mm. the very like there's a lot of ways it can go into almost um flighty maybe mm-hmm. um but Teresa brought this humanity and kindness that is just her frankly um as a human being and okay. so. When you asked me, like she was on the phone with me this weekend saying, what are we going to do, Monica? I have to talk to people. Like she, she's very aware of what the story represents and very um, protective of Fiji fans. Yes. And I love that. I love yeah. that. That she cares, that she knows, you know, people go through things when they watch television. They feel things. Very true. You have to immerse yourself <laughs> in the story for sure. So that's... <laughs> And sometimes, like, things are painful. Yes. And that if it weren't so much, then, you know, if if it doesn't take you on a journey, then you don't want to show up for the ride. So it's like, that's Well, that's, you know, awesome. I mean, it's kind of why the fairy tales end with the happy ending. Because <laughs> once it's happy, it's over. Very true. Very, very true. Hmm. Well, it was really great chatting with you i think we are um in a good place to kind of close it out it was awesome hearing just the the thought process me as also a writer it's like how how do you approach that and then once you put it out there you're like oh no there's all this other stuff going on in layers you sort of know that but you don't know it like this yes like this is almost too on the nose for it to have been a little uncanny yes yeah i I mean I don't want, I would have preferred it not be on the, on the net. <laughs> I could understand that. That makes it a little bit more easy to just appreciate the entertainment value of it without. Yeah. Well, also just as a, an American, I wish it weren't on <laughs> like oh, well, my yes. personal life. And then there's I that part. I the fantasy, but a lot. Right. That's very true. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. And I really appreciate you getting on the phone and at this late date and being willing to chat and watch the episode yeah no it was, it was i was excited to be able to do it so i am looking forward to looking at it one more time so i can do the editorial element of it but i already have several stories and things that i saw that i was like this is really cool like i like the whole gypsy and the oh, like awesome. that story and that yeah that no I, I also that's like but there's another story and it's awesome. Yes, it was, there was like a whole other journey that was happening and a whole other couple that was going through their own change oh, cool. and deciding oh, how they were going to commit. So that was cool. Oh, 
awesome. I'm glad. I'm so glad. That's yeah. So that that was not lost on the the larger story. That that other one was like that's also quite important. And there's a <laughs> level of intentionality, and that's also going to come back around somehow. Oh so. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. But oh, cool. That's great to hear. Well, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. It was great meeting you and chatting with you. And I yes. look forward to seeing more stories that you tell. I really like this awesome. one. Awesome. And look, if you need to get in touch with me, reach me. You could DM me. Um, I'm available to answer or talk more. Okay, sounds good. So, thank you. Okay, thank you. Awesome. Have a great weekend. You too. The following are roundtable interviews over at San Diego Comic-Con, featuring Parisa Fitzhenley, Dylan Bruce, Ariel Kebbell, and Peter Mensa. Hello, how are you? How are you? Well, thank you. Tell us about PG and Bobo. Oh. What do you want to know? The secrets. Yeah, we can't even blow your mind like that just yet. They're so sweet. They're really sweet. Really sweet, yeah. But the thing that I think makes them really sweet in particular is that it's not just, it goes deep. It really goes deep. It goes real deep, yeah. They're friends in that friendship. We're going to see it tested mm-hmm. and and in when a friendship in more ways than one yeah. and when you test a real friendship you see what it's really made of and and you really see what this friendship is made of <laughs> and, i mean I, like i'm you know i can step outside of it sometimes and look at things and just go wow mm-hmm. you know and even when i i've watched some of the stuff that we that we've done um in the season, like when we do our ADR voiceover work at the end, and some of it, I was like, I just can't yet. I have to wait. I have to watch this with the fans. <laughs> it's too, it's too special. <laughs> so you know, we'll see what happens, and there will be some twists and turns, and it'll be a fun, a fun ride. Did you do any, um, was any early research into? Help you with your character, role. I did. I did some stuff. Um, I met with some some people who practice Wicca, who, are, who identify as pagan. Um, you know, we, it, Fiji Fiji in the in the show in particular, you see her dealing with Wicca a lot. But I think one of the great things about her is that she's kind of non-denominational in her witchcraft. Really takes um, takes what's useful from different places. And and so I grew up kind of like that in certain ways, um, like with different spiritual paths around me. And and so for me, I kind of felt like I already had it in me. And so then I just learned particular things as I went along. Did that answer you? So what makes me be different from other witches that we've seen portrayed in other stories? Well, when I see witches, a lot of the time, they're usually really confident in their powers. And, um, and I feel like... Fiji, Fiji, one of her, one of the things that she's really going to struggle with throughout this season, and, and in particular if you see in the books, she's, she struggles with her insecurities, she struggles with her fears, and you, and you see her deal with that. Um, she also really is such a sweetie. 
and and really wants everybody to be happy and wants everybody to be together. But she goes on quite a journey of, of even seeing the world in that way. So um, yeah, I think it's I think it's different. So Dylan, you made a transition over from clones. I did. Yeah. To, to this now. Yeah. How, how does it? How does this feel different for you? Now you're dealing with, I would say, different actors, actors and actresses as opposed to one act. Right, right, right. Please, or now. I mean. So yeah. How many? I, I, like four, five main ones, and then she's done like twelve, yeah, you know, all together. Yeah. But what a blessing from going to working with her to this amazing lady here. It's it's just it's just been awesome. It's been an awesome ride for me and. And that's a more scientific, you know. Um, that's, Are you saying that that's, witchcraft is not scientific? No, but that's 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 science reality. We're supernatural, like yeah. very broad and very abstract. It's so, a good it, analogy about science reality is more about drama and reality in a sense, right? With mysticism and psychics and wicked. Yeah, and yeah this tigers. it has all the supernatural elements that I like this show. So I mean, it was it's amazing to be a part of it and to be one of the humans and kind of get to experience the uh, the coming out of the supernatural uh, beings as as the season progresses. Really fun for me to play and from going to playing such a stoic character to kind of a more lovable uh, good old boy from the south uh, who's uh, who's who's going on the journey with the fans was was fun for me. I felt like I got to emote a lot more. <laughs> it's a really cool journey that Bobo goes on because you get to see. I, so often you see this like the all American guy, and he's always winning, and he's always strong, and everything's fine. And it's like and actually he goes through a lot of different things and really gets tested. Yeah, and yeah. It's, well put. It's well really put. sweet, yeah. and you get to see. I think one of the things that you see with all of the characters that I don't think you see on other shows is the vulnerability. Um, and They're how that so bonds cool. them and makes them stronger, yeah. which I think is a reality in life that we are also kind of afraid of often as human beings to deal with. But, you know, when you look at between Charlene Harris and Monica Breen, who is the, the showrunner for the show, these are women who are so heart-based and so intelligent, and, and they just know how to to bring real human emotion to what's going on, Absolutely. no matter whether you've got wings or fangs or you're just digging in your garden. Um, yeah, so I feel like... <laughs> she has a beautiful garden, by the way. I do. Yeah. Very talented. A lot of stuff in that garden. But anyway, they're just excellent at that, and you feel it, and it's what I'm in love with with the show, and I think other people will be too. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right, what's, uh -oh. it, what's it like being an assassin? Uh, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> uh, I did two to three hours of training a day, and I did weapon training, fight training, fight choreography, kickboxing, boxing, uh, you name it. And um, I fell in love with Olivia. Did she help you with that? <laughs> <laughs> no, she's, <laughs> you'll see as the story evolves, actually, that um, fighting becomes part of the storyline. I can't really tell you. Wink, wink. <laughs> uh, Peter, you, how is this show going to be slightly different than the other roles that you had? Like the last season you were on Supernatural, oh, sorry, on Sleepy Hollow, then Spartacus and 300. Right. Um, well, this is very different. This is the first time you see um, any of the characters I play in a relationship, um, for a long-term relationship, I suppose. You, you know, I have a wife and she dies. 
or I have a wife and I die. Um, so this is, this is uh, an evolving story. And the other thing too is that this is really a story about a community, as unusual as they are. Um, and I love that because they're all sort of on the outside misfits and not normal, um, but somehow or other they're in community. And I, I love that part of this, this story. And also we get to bring Charlene Harris's characters to life, which is such an honor. Absolutely. What do you want fans who are watching the show to leave each episode feeling? I want them to laugh and cry with us, and I want them to root for us. Yeah, I think the, the, the great thing about it is it's not just supernatural. This is sort of supernaturals and humans, but they all have something to hide, and that's part of the story of Midnight. Um, they, they might be unusual, they are in community together, but there are layers to every single character. And I think the audience is going to sort of be rooting for people, but kind of wondering, hey, is there something behind this? What else is going on? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Well. Enjoy Thank the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Told by the activists and leaders who live and breathe this movement for justice, Whose Streets is an unflinching look at the Ferguson Uprising, when an unarmed teenager, Michael Brown, is killed by police and left lying in the street for hours, it marks a breaking point for the residents of St. Louis, Missouri. Grief, long-standing racial tensions, and renewed anger brings residents together to hold a vigil and protest this latest tragedy. Empowered parents, artists, and teachers from around the country come together as freedom fighters. As the National Guard descends on Ferguson with military-grade weaponry, these young community members become the torchbearers of a new resistance. Filmmakers Sabah Folian and Damon Davis know this story because they are the story. Whose Streets is a powerful battle cry from a generation fighting not for their civil rights, but for the right to live. Damon, I wanted to say thank you so much for chatting with us today because I really feel like this film is just something everyone should see. I'm going to quote one of my colleagues, and I think it's funny that a guy from, a Jewish guy from New York is the one that gave me the best thing to describe this film, but Incendiary um, from Jordan Hoffman, I just, I felt like really just encapsulates the film. So what about whose streets would you tell folks um, when they talk about sitting down to see the film? What would you want to tell them before they watch it? Um, I just want people to know that this is not your typical documentary, that this is not just a social justice film, that this is not a bunch of talking heads trying to tell people how to think or what to do, but that this is really um, a film in the truest sense of the word, that it's a work of art um, that is intended to convey and emotion and, and really um, reflect the dignity and the beauty of the people who took on this challenge and, and tried to change the way things are done in our country. Yeah, I, I concur. I concur with that. And I hope to everybody, all of the people of color that go and see it, I really hope that they see themselves reflected back um, in a way that they rarely get to see. I hope they see themselves humanized and all the complexities or as many complexities as we can fit into the film or reflect it back to them so that they, they are vindicated and, um, and, and proud 
of seeing themselves standing up in some really um, wild conditions, you know? Yeah. I will say this. For me personally, it was very emotional watching it. So the first time I saw it was actually at Sundance. It was not on the opening night, but it was while the the film was showing there. What, how is that? Because, you know, it's a film about Ferguson that speaks, that speaks so much to a racial divide. I feel like that particular film festival, obviously the makeup of y'all's viewings is going to be about as, as mixed as we're going to get. Was it different with that crowd, do you feel, seeing it with Sundance folks? Because not a lot of black folks at Sundance, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think it was I think it was specific to the, to the local environment and the conditions set up. I mean... They won't they like they having a festival on a mountain in the winter. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> let's think about who can get up there, who got the access to do that. You know what I mean? It's kind of, you know, it's kind of um, curated. Just by the, <laughs> like, um, I do, but we we got positive responses. But um, and and so um, I was I was I was really happy about that. But I knew that uh, that was not core audience from the beginning. You know. But it still did really well. So, I mean, it's still sitting at 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't think that's going to change when it goes to wide release. That blows I mean, my mind every time somebody <laughs> say that to me. I'm going to say it again. That 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Let's say it again. <laughs> um, yeah, because, I mean, it really is a great film in the sense that you guys, um, it, we're in a moment right now where today it's almost exactly four years to the day, three years to the day of that fateful day. So, what has I guess I would say what was y'all's process to get involved with it now then show this out to the public? How did you get involved? When did you start shooting? When did it become basically a film? So we came out there, um I touched down about a month after everything happened and originally I was gonna write and try to create a um a public health study actually to say that people and police facing off every day was going to have a long-term traumatic effect. And I was with my friend from college, who's our DP, Lucas Alvarado Farrar. And he, um, he and I were taking, he was taking photos, I was asking questions, and we quickly realized that we needed to go bigger in order to really capture what this story was. So that's when we started rolling. And um, that was about two weeks after we got there. So mid-September we were rolling, and we connected with Damon a few months later and looking for a collaborator who was from St. Louis who would be able to make sure that we, you know, really understood the environment and make sure that we were able to portray something that was true to the experience of living there. Um, and we've just been rolling ever since. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it can't, it kind of came to me. And uh, I just, when we, we were, we were uh, missing each other for a while, and then when we finally got, got in the same room and really had a chance to talk, we just realized we had a lot in common and had the same analysis of things. And so, yeah, it was it was an unlikely pairing, but I'm glad it happened, you know. No, it's great. And I think you see both sides of that. I would say that the film perfectly segments between the online battle that happened with Twitter and with the activism that we had on social media and the grassroots, like, on-the-streets activists in Ferguson who were just, like, were like resist before resist was a thing. Like it was it was just dogged how much they didn't want to give up. So how did you guys get involved and, and get to get into their windows? Because a lot of them gave you guys footage that it looks like was used in the film. So how did their their contribution to the film happen? 
Um, that's something that happened later in post-production, and, uh, you know, next time around, I definitely would not wait to that point in the process to start collecting <laughs> the footage. But um, we did have a number of filmmakers on the ground, journalists and, and independent filmmakers, who contributed footage to us, and we also scoured social media, um, looking through Vine clips and Instagram clips. I had joked with our editor early on saying that he was going to have to cut a movie out of Vine clips, and we laughed, but, you know, towards the end there with those first 20 minutes, he really did an incredible job of creating a sense of space and place out of these, you know, clips that were sometimes coming from different cell phones, different sources, and, um, yeah, so so that was a challenging process, but definitely very useful. I think it, it speaks to the evolution of technology. We really wanted the form of the film to reflect the changes in the way that we communicate, which is why we included, you know, everything from handwritten quotes from, you know, Pat, people who have passed on, all the way to, you know, these typed out tweets that you see and everything in between, because this for us is a synthesis of a huge struggle as well as a really specific micro story about people, um, you know, engaging in that battle head on. Yeah, that was the thing that grounded me to it, and I felt a part of the whole narrative because I recognized, like, a Twitter handle from someone. Like, I know that person, and I recognized seeing a tweet that kind of went viral. Um, what would you say – I'm trying to word this the right way. What would you say was the hardest part for choosing, I guess, a perfect tweet to segment a section of the film? Like, how did you guys juxtapose those? Because they they, they pair so well. Can you repeat the question? I was saying the the Twitter the Twitter tweets that you guys use in between the various segments of the film you pair them up to where they kind of speak to what's happening and happening next. How did you guys choose those to pair them up together? That was a, that was a struggle in the beginning. We gathering. Yeah, we was just looking at all these tweets and gathering, and it was like um, Sabah like Sabah really spearheaded the the, the tweet. Discussion and curation, but I remember in the beginning it, it was like we—it's so much of this stuff, and every day, and collecting good ones, and you know it was—it was just—it was, just was just a real struggle. But um, I, I mean, I can let somebody speak to it more because she was the one spearheading the, the tweet situation. Um, yeah, I mean, like Damon said, it was challenging. We pulled hundreds of tweets that were really strong, and there were so many themes that were brought out in the tweets that you know kind of enhanced what was in the movie. And so there were some tough ones that we had to cut, and it was really tough to figure out how each Twitter segment was going to um, contribute to the film. I still remember there was a tweet about reproductive justice that we had to remove because it didn't necessarily flow. But, um, you know, that online conversation, for us, it was supposed to represent that, you know, these are people who were being besieged on all sides by this militarized occupation in their own backyard, but yet they're receiving this um, growing support using this digital space. So you see as the film goes on, the, the, the Twitter mechanism expands up to the climax when, you know, everybody comes in at Ferguson October. And then after that, we really don't see the tweets because, for me, that was the arc of that technology thing. It was going from that initial first responder of who's witnessing it to people you know, kind of doing commentary to, like, actually using it tactically to help each other um, and then finally using it to, to spread this message nationwide. Yeah, and I, like I said, it was the thing that grounded me most of the film. I felt almost a part of it. There's so many great moments in the film. The one that hit me the hardest 
was the African-American female police officer and just her emotions and that face and that shot. I mean, there's so many different moments. What would you say? And then there's villains. There's there's like a romance that unfolds. There's heroes. There's comedy even in some strange moments. But what was one of you, I would say, one of your favorite people that you guys got to document or maybe a favorite moment from the film? Um, Like you said, there are so many really great moments. I really love Kenna. Like, I think she really just makes the film and brings a lot of that light and joy that does come through. Um, mm-hmm. I really love how the, the, you know, just the thing with the chants and how she starts out, you know, really not liking the chants and then ends up saying it. I just feel like that's one of those things that you can't plan that kind of thing out. You know, you could never prepare for that, but it was just so perfect because it was a real reflection of her growth and her kind of creating her own identity, but at the same time looking up to her mom, you know, which was really personal to me because I was raised by a single mom and, um, you know, we've always had an extremely close relationship and she's always been the one teaching me about my culture and my heritage and the importance of, you know, standing up for myself. So to be able to be a vessel to that particular part of the story and see, you know, see so much of myself in Kenna and in Brittany, um, that was just really an awesome experience. And especially when she gets out of the car and swings that backpack around her head as she's walking yeah. into school. Like, it's just those little things, you know, that, that remind you that this is real life and these are real people that are, you know, just trying to trying to survive. Yeah. Um, She's going to hate us for that backpack scene when she hit about 16 or 17. <laughs> Y'all could have cut, you could have edited that out. But I, um, I think my favorite part is the montage from Ferguson, October. Uh, that was a very, very hectic time for me personally and, and for everybody else. And I just remember um, it was moving so fast. And and just the the way we, like, with the music and the way that, that Chris really cut it, it captured the the level of uh, uh, intensity that was around it and, and, and the, the level of, like, um, organization. I love how people, like, we get it all the time, how we just don't, they don't look organized. They were never organized. And it was like... It, uh, if this ain't organization with, with like, uh, like strategically shutting down multiple stores, multiple places, uh, disorientating the, the law enforcement to to not know who's protesting where or what, you know what I'm saying? And I don't really know what people's definition of organizing is. That was a proud like that. Every time I hear, hear that music and see that those images cut together, it's just a, a, a real sense of pride that I get. So I think that's that's probably my favorite part. It just feels like the Rocky montage, you know what I'm saying? Like the training yeah. uh, montage, you know what I'm saying? It just amps you up, you know what I mean? And it, and it feels like a real win, you know what I'm saying? It felt like a win when, when when it happened. Yeah. I can only imagine. Another one of my favorite moments was watching um, Brittany with her daughter twisting out her hair and also, like, basically giving her the education of the revolution and, like, you have to do this and you have to do that. That was another great moment for me. I was like, yeah. this is the blackest moment I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> That face that she makes <laughs> at the breakfast table is just like we yeah. have all gotten that face from our mom at some point. What are you yes. talking about? <laughs> um, the next thing I was going to say is, again, you know, this started three years ago, and we're still dealing with the same thing, repercussions of it after, like, echoes of it. And, like, one thing I think that echoes right now that just came into the news is 
this misguided attempt by HBO to make slavery fan fiction. And I feel like I want to sit down anyone who thinks that's a good idea and watch this film to understand that we already exist in a place of black pain and we don't need to recreate it. So I would just ask you guys what, like, because it's a weird juxtaposition with a film like this. What would you say to that? What would you say in this film speaks to that and so that they need to understand and that needs to educate? Um, when I first heard the news about Confederate coming out, I'll, I'll admit this. I wasn't completely upset right off the bat. And my hope was that they were conceiving of something that was um, going to basically demonstrate how the premise that they put forward, the idea that, you know, the Civil War, the North didn't win the Civil War, and, you know, the South perpetuated slavery. I think there are partial truths in that because the story that we have been given about the Civil War and about slavery ending isn't true. And so I saw a potential for a, a storyline like that to expose um, some of the realities of America. But I think that, especially with the news today coming out of um, – but, but first of all, just to stay on the topic of Confederate, I don't necessarily trust the authors. And I haven't seen anything from their work to indicate that they're really embedded in any spirit of black liberation or, you know, radically valuing black lives. And so to use the use this simply as entertainment value, I think, is inappropriate and really insensitive to a lot of people's pain. Um, and so to hear the news come out more recently about the Amazon show uh, Black yeah. America, that's very exciting because it shows how, you know, we can be imaginative with history without re-traumatizing people, and it shocks me that it just never occurs to people, to, to white authors, to imagine white people in a position of oppression. It's almost like it's a taboo. Um, so I'm just interested to see how these things continue to play out. Yeah. Uh, it, it always boggles my mind, um, the lack of creativity, for, for or at least at this point in time, I guess like, people think that everything's been done, and also the obsession that white folks got with either Hitler winning the war or the South winning the war. And and we like why don't we ever dissect the fact that how many people just really want to know what would happen if um you know what I'm saying? Like if the other side would have won. It's just always a weird thing to me to like why we even talk about this. They lost. Nobody ever talks about the losers. Yeah. Just other than, you know what I'm saying, like the like these these huge I guess I guess when it divides white people down the middle is when we want to see what the other side was. But uh, when I first heard about that show, it, it, it kind of just I just like all right I ain't fucking with that and it was over with. Like it wasn't like I didn't I didn't really think about it or dissect it and and it was just like it was just quick and it was just like all right yeah that's some more because because it's like so much information coming at you and it's like it was just something I just wasn't I wasn't really. Um, I was indifferent towards. I was like, here we go again with this. You know what I'm saying? So I yeah. hope that I at least shows you. Um, I, I just really want to like just focus on black folks, and you know what I'm saying? And, and like the, the the good, the bad, whatever inside of that, inside of that community, and stop making white people even a character in it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like let's imagine this. Like let's imagine this world and the world is like where we at with us for a second. You know what I'm saying? And like not. Not always either making them a focal point or or making it for their audiences, and I think that's what all every all of the entertainment is made with that that core demographic in mind. When we could like move away from that and tell some tell some new stories, you know. I have to say again, I've seen now the film twice. I saw it at Sundance. I saw it now. It is definitely one of my favorite documentaries of the year. 
Um, it's definitely something that's getting highly buzzed about. And, 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 you know, the documentary film is a place where I feel like us as filmmakers or writers of color can have a place. What do you think about, you know, possible Oscar buzz? You guys are coming from Magnolia, which got, you know, they also did um, I'm Not Your Negro last year that was nominated for an Oscar. What do you think about about the chance of going to the Oscar ceremony? Um, I'm really honored by that, to be in conversation with so many great films. Um, but I think for me, like, when we were able to show this film back to the people who were in it, and they were able to appreciate it and say that they felt um, reflected and represented and honored by it, like, that was when I got my award. And so it's really wonderful to be in this position now where the film is going to come out and be seen by a lot of people and the story is going to be honored, and, you know, any accolades that come on top of that will just be, you know, icing on the cake for us. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, but from the beginning, it was about the, these people. It's about us. It's about the people that lived it, and us being able to see our side of the story. And I, and, and um, like the boss said, when the people that were the actual subjects loved it, that that, that was a like, that was the award ceremony. The one thing I'm waiting for is, like, for the, for the whole city to see it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be bright, too. Um, but yeah, as far as the, going to the Oscars, we'll see. That's, yeah. my, that's my thing. Yes. <laughs> hey, well, I. Really is, oh, sorry. Oh. No, no, go ahead. I was just saying, I think this whole you know story is really a testament to what seems like a rare situation when you know having integrity and staying true to yourself pays off. And I think we always believed in our hearts that if we stayed true to the principles, that it would have that kind of wide appeal. So it's very, very gratifying to know that you know, in a world that seems so pessimistic that that kind of success is still possible. Yes. Yeah. No, I loved it, and I hope for much icing. Like, seriously, I'll be up with (laughs) the icing. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Y'all have a great day. The Black Girl Nerds Podcast is produced by Jamie Broadnax. Various episodes are edited by Jamie Broadnax, M.R. Daniel, and John Bauer. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spreaker, and Spotify. That was a HeadGum Podcast.